Judges 13 and 14 tonight. So I'm going to begin by reading chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. We have come to what is called the Samson Cycle. This is several chapters that are going to focus on Samson. Most of the other judges we've looked at have either had just a few verses or part of a chapter. Gideon had a long section. Samson is going to have a long section also. And he's actually the last named judge in the book of Judges. So we'll have hit all of them at this point. But we are still in the downward spiral that is the book of Judges where the people will sin, the Lord will deliver them over to an oppressor, they will cry out for help, God will raise up a judge, they will follow the Lord again for a time, and then it starts over again. And that's where we are here in the story. We saw back in chapter 10, verse 7, before the story of Jephthah, that God sold Israel into the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines. And I mentioned that those stories are probably happening around the same time. They are different regions. One is mostly happening in Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan. And this is going to be happening in the mainland. So Samson and Jephthah probably overlap to some degree or another. A lot of these stories probably do. But Jephthah handled the Ammonites. Now we're going to turn to the Philistines and Samson is going to handle the Philistines. We've already talked about them a little bit. The Philistines are what are known as the Sea Peoples that they came from the Mediterranean Sea. They came from the Great Sea. We historically believe they came to the land of Canaan in force shortly after the Israelites did, around 1200 BC. So that would be approximately 200 plus years after the Exodus is over. And they, there were Philistines there. We read about Isaac having interactions with them. Uh, we've already read about Shamgar dealing with them some. But we believe that the Philistines came from the island of Crete, we talked about the Kaftarim in Genesis 10:14. Joshua 13:3 talks about these, these Philistines that came and established five city-states. And those five cities are Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Gath. I wrote Gaza twice. Gath was the other one. It's where Goliath came from. And the, the Philistines were different because they had more of a Greek culture about them. They weren't Semitic in their ethnicity. So they came and their governance is seen to be a little bit different. Their gods were slightly different, although again, there's a lot of overlap. And their technology was stronger. They were using iron while everybody else was using bronze, which gave them an advantage over the rest of the people. They worshiped the fish god. They worshiped Dagon, who we will meet in a little bit here, and he's going to be shamed before the Lord of hosts. But this story here with Samson is when the Philistines begin to take that famous role as Israel's greatest adversary. Of course, Samson and then Samuel, Saul, David, they're going to be fighting the Philistines. And this is when God begins to push back on these people. The name Palestine is related to the word for Philistine. So it's amazing how many things go all the way back to the scriptures, isn't it? So in order to fight this Israel's greatest adversary, God is going to raise up one of the greatest men Israel ever knew, who was also one of the most complicated and flawed men that Israel ever knew. Samson is a fascinating character in the Bible, isn't he? We're drawn to who he is, but there's really... Not when you want to just look at it in one way, there's not a lot of good to be said about him. But then you look at another angle, it's like, man, the Lord really used this guy, and he did. 
You can see as we've gone through the book of Judges, starting with Othniel going through, there's been that steady decline in the quality of the men God has used. And Samson is going to be the ultimate example of uh, a lot more flaws than, than commendable attributes. Although, as I've said many times, these are still the good guys. We still like Samson. He's just a tragic figure. So let's go through chapter 13 pretty quickly. I want to focus mostly on chapter 14 tonight. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoach, but we'll call him Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us, and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. We'll pause right here. This is Zorah, which is down south-central Israel, due west from Jerusalem, more or less, not too far. Uh, Israel had not taken possession of this city yet, but if you know where that is, it helps you orient yourself. And there's this man, Manoah, and his wife, who has not had any children. And there is a visitation from the angel of the Lord. I think this is one of those cases that the writer to Hebrews warns us about in Hebrews 13 too, that there are many who have entertained angels without understanding it, so be nice to everybody, is what he's trying to say. And three times, you heard it, three times he gives the instruction of the rules that this child is not to break. Because the child was to be a Nazarite. Numbers chapter 6 gives us the rules of what a Nazarite was to be. A Nazarite was a vow that you would take, not usually for your whole life, but for a short time, where you would abstain, all those things you just said, you would abstain from normal kinds of uncleanness, like dead bodies. You would not mourn for the dead, for example, during this time. You would not drink wine or strong drink, and you would be extra careful, is the idea, of to not violate the commands of the law. And you would do this, you'd grow out your hair. When it was over, you'd cut your hair. You would offer it on the altar with a sacrifice, and it was done as an act of devotion and worship to the Lord. We see Paul take on a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. What's unusual about this story is that Samson was to be a Nazarite from the time he was born until the day of his death. So never to stop living this way. The other two examples in scripture of this, although we are uncertain, uh, but I think it's pretty convincing. I can talk about you later if you want, is uh, Samuel was also a Nazarite from birth and John the Baptist was likely also a Nazarite from birth. 
The reason for this is God is going to give them a child to defeat the Philistines. I'm going to give you the kid who's going to rise up and get rid of these guys. Actually, to begin the process, it would be David that would finish this ultimately. This is a heavy responsibility. So he said, I'm going to give you extra steps to take to ensure that this one is going to listen to me. Jephthah loved the Lord, but Jephthah had allowed a lot of this pagan ideas to come into his life, and he tragically sacrificed his own daughter, as you saw. So the Lord goes, let's, let's take this one from the womb. He wasn't virgin-born, but God enabled them to conceive in the usual way. But we're going to protect him from the day of his birth. It's a pretty heavy thing, a pretty exciting thing. So verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. This is that Middle Eastern hospitality you may have heard about. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? A little Aslan moment there, huh? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. You can underline that. There's some difference of translation there. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Manoah is kind of a neurotic figure in this passage, isn't he? There are some that think this is trying to paint a further picture of the weakness of the men in Israel at this time. I don't know if you can push it that far. I probably would have reacted about the same way, too. If, uh, you know, you light a fire and then, like, it explodes toward heaven and the guy you're talking to goes up with it. Um, but they offer the meal out of hospitality. They believe he's at least a prophet, right? So he says, no, nah, I'm not going to eat anything. But if you want to offer a sacrifice, offer that to the Lord. And he insists, to the Lord, to Jehovah. Don't offer a sacrifice to Baal in my presence, you know. And there could be an interesting comparison, I think, that I won't get into tonight, between the fact that here the angel of the Lord, who we believe to be a Christological figure, will not eat, but after his resurrection, Jesus partakes of the, the fish and the bread as a, an example that he has risen from the dead. One of the ways we know that Jesus took on flesh for all time, not just for a season. He's always there to intercede for us. He says, what's your name, fella? And he says, what do you want to know my name for? It's wonderful. And if, you know, we kind of wish Manoah had like pressed a little bit. <laughs> it's like, well, it's one, your name is wonderful or it's a wonderful name? And what is it? Well, we know the Lord's name. And it's another hint here at the divine identity of the angel of the Lord. This isn't just an angel. This is the capital A angel of the Lord, who we believe to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. I'm not going to defend that today. We've done it in the past, but it's a really fun Bible study for you to do. And he says, offer it to the Lord. Now, when it says here, I told you to underline that translation note uh, there in verse 19. It said, they offered it on the rock to the Lord. And the English standard, which we're reading tonight, says, to the one who works wonders. And Pretty much all of the translations that I saw has, and the Lord worked a wonder. He did a wonderful thing here. You can, I just want to point this out. This is where most translations differ, is things like this. Does this change the sense of the passage at all? 
No, of course not. Does God work wonders? Yeah, he does. Did he do a wonderful thing here? Yeah, he did. So while we want to get the translation right, don't let anybody come up and say, don't you know the Bible's full of all sorts of translation problems? Well, they're like this. There's, no, there's nothing that affects any matter of doctrine. The, the usual translations rely on the interpretation of the Septuagint and the Vulgate here, which is fine because the Hebrew is a little dodgy. Like how exactly do we render that? The ESV has a point because he's kind of making a profound statement based on the grammar, but it uh, shouldn't bother you too much when you see things like that. But we get a story. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 21, when Gideon made a sacrifice to the Lord and the guy touched the sacrifice with his staff and the fire sprang up out of the rock and he went up to heaven. So we're seeing a similar thing here. And although they're afraid, she says, okay, okay, he didn't, we're not dead yet. <laughs> and, he, and he accepted the offering and we are supposed to have a baby. So I, I think we're okay. I don't think we're going to die. And uh, they didn't, of course. Verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Shimshon, but we'll call him Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtol. So true to his word, God gave them a son, and they named him Shimshon, which is related to the Hebrew word Shemesh, which means sun, like the sun in the sky, not like a sun that you beget. And so Sunny might be a good nickname for this guy. Sunny. So, you know... Who wants to get beat up with a jawbone by a guy named Sonny? I don't know, but I doubt anybody teased him about it to his face. This is the famous Samson, of course. And all of Samson's life, he was to abstain from wine, not even to eat grapes or raisins or anything like that, not to be around dead bodies or to become unclean unnecessarily, which means he never would have been able to go to a funeral, if you think about that, and to never, ever cut his hair or his beard. All the pictures have Samson with long flowing locks and he's always like clean shaven. It's like, nah, he would have looked like a wild man. He would have had hair all the way down and, and we were going to read about the locks of his hair because over time it would have dried out. It would have begun to, uh, to nap up into dreadlocks kind of looking thing. I don't know if he styled it or not, but that's, that's what happens. His beard would have been long and that's the picture that we have of Samson. And he's going to kind of act like a wild man, isn't he? And this is who he's supposed to be. His parents would have lived with the knowledge that their son... Little Shimshon is destined for great things. This is the kid who's going to get rid of the Philistines. This is the one who's going to raise him. And I'm sure they would have told him. And the reason I think they told him is because Samson has an awful lot of swagger for somebody who hasn't accomplished much yet when we first meet him. They would say, you're the one, the chosen child. I am? Yes, you are. Wow, that's, that's great. And they would have known, to focus on our theme for tonight, that he had incredible potential. Incredible potential. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, is what are the strengths and the pitfalls of a person or a nation or a church or a generation that has great potential? How do you handle it in yourself? How do you handle it in other people? Samson, of course, was destined for great things. God had told them as much. But we run across people that you see them and you know, man, you could accomplish anything. Every, kid, every parent loves their kids, but we all know certain people that are going to go far. Now, I played football and I, I played fine, but there was a kid on my team named Logan who everybody knew, you know, if you had to place a bet on which one's going to go pro, it's this kid. <laughs> Not that he was, you know, dominating everybody. You could just tell there's potential in this guy. And he plays in the NFL today, actually. 
You know, or you see somebody in school and you know, I get good grades, but that kid just breezes by, right? So that's potential. There are charming people that just everybody they talk to just likes them instantly. That's a kind of potential. People have great resources. Sometimes not something you earned or deserved, but somebody who's born into wealth, for example. There's great potential there. Somebody that has talent. It's always fun when you meet somebody that finds that thing that they like that they are also good at. When those two things align, it's like that's an amazing amount of potential in somebody. Beauty is an example of potential as well. Somebody who's very attractive, male or female. It's like there, there is something to be done with this person. There are going to be doors that open for this person that might not open for everybody else. Opportunities that are going to be available. And even to say that, there are opportunities that are forms of potential. You get accepted to a certain university, potential comes in. And it can be something just like power. You know, the United States has more potential to affect the world than a lot of other smaller countries. These are the things I'm talking about. And we get very excited when we see these things in our kids, which is what he said. What are we supposed to do with this kid? How do you raise a kid like that? Maybe some of you have asked the Lord similar questions. And we can get excited about this in ourselves or others. But as we're going to see, Samson is the biggest example in the Bible maybe of wasted potential. Of somebody that could have been something great and yet fell short of what he could have been. And... There are several specific pitfalls that Samson demonstrates for us that must be overcome if either you or someone you love or even broader, the church, the country, the community, whatever it might be, must overcome in order to succeed. Because while Samson has an awful lot of good to say about him, as do Jephthah and all these guys, there is a negative example that we must observe as we go through. And so as Samson is growing up, Living in the hill country, because back in chapter 1, verse 34, the tribe of Dan was unable to drive out the Amorites, and they went up and lived in the hills, rather than going down into the valleys and taking possession of the fertile land there. He sees that it's the Philistines disarming my people, the Philistines taking these tributes from us, the Philistines mocking our gods, and the Spirit begins to stir up this young man. And we're going to see he had the possibility to do amazing things if he could just get out of his own way. So tonight we're going to talk about the things that got in Samson's way to help us avoid them in ourselves and maybe also help lead somebody else to not fall into those traps either. So let's get into chapter 14 now. And uh, there's quite a bit of humor, in my opinion, in in this story. Samson is is a colorful character. He went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. You like that? Go get her. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? That was a specific insult they levied against the Philistines because all the tribes around them also practiced circumcision, as is still the case to this day. The Greeks and those that came from that culture, like the Philistines, didn't do that. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know, this is such an interesting little verse, that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So when he's grown, Samson went down. And you might want to mark in your Bible all the places that said that Samson went down, because he's going down. 
That's a big theme in the book of Jonah, too. He goes down, 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 down until the Lord brings him up. That's what's going to happen to Samson, too. But he's smitten with this Philistine girl. And he comes back and he says, hey, I found the girl I want to marry, so go make it happen, Dad. Now, women are often pitied for this uh, arranged marriage that they used to. Oh, they didn't have a choice in it. You do realize that the men didn't have much of a choice either. Dad picked. Dad and mom made the decision. This is who you're marrying. Good luck. I'm sure you'll grow very fond of one another. But he says, hey, Dad, go, go get a wife for me. That's not how this was done. It was, it was disrespectful here. Not only that, but there were prohibitions that the Lord had put out in Deuteronomy 7 and elsewhere that you're not supposed to intermarry with these other nations. His parents object, similar to Esau. It's like, you got to go marry a Hittite. You can't marry one of our own clan, somebody who worships our God. And Samson says, she is right in my eyes. And that's all he was doing, is using his eyes to make a decision. So here's our first lesson. Samson and other high potential people face the temptation to be sensual. Sensual. It's a word we don't use so much anymore, but it's not hard to understand. It comes from the word for sense. You have your five senses. And to be a sensual person is to overindulge your senses, to live with the purpose of satisfying your senses, to always be living for new heightened experiences, to see something new, to hear something, to taste something. Sexual gratification comes into this. Accomplishments come into this. Drugs come into this, especially to the neglect of matters of the spirit. To be sensual is to live for feeling good. Even if it's not, you know, a, an addictive lifestyle, you understand. It's the things that I'm living for are those moments where I can indulge my senses. And that's how Samson was. He wasn't serving the Lord here. He wasn't even thinking as a, as a patriotic Israelite here. He says, she's hot and I want to marry her, Dad. Go make it happen. Paul wrote about such people in Ephesians 4.19. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. And here's his short definition of sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Unnatural desires. Now, men like Samson, women, groups face this temptation because when somebody has very high potential and has the ability to do great things, other people will give them a pass because of the benefits they get from this person. You see, Samson's parents very clearly had not put a lot of restraint on this young man. Now, Samson is a big personality, second to none. So maybe they can be excused for that. And the Lord was in this. But Manoah, remember, is not exactly the strongest character as we saw from the previous chapter. But I get the feeling that they had not put appropriate limitations on their son because they knew who he was to be someday. We're going to tell him, no, this child, don't you know who he is? Don't you know who this little baby boy of ours is going to be someday? And this still happens to this day. Many preachers, for example, have all kinds of messed up lives that other people know about, but they let them do it because, oh, he can just preach like nobody else. Oh, but his ministry is so effective. What would we do without her in this place? I think of in Revelation, they, in the church of Thyatira, they had that woman Jezebel who was teaching, was seducing all of the men in the church. Perhaps they didn't want to put a stop to her because she sure knew how to liven up a meeting. She sure knew how to, how to get everybody in. The people were coming to the church, never mind the fact for horrible reasons, but this is unfortunately a very common thing that happens. 
What does this lead to? It leads to people misusing their talents. It leads to grosser and grosser sins because you've got to constantly be chasing that next sensual experience, ranging from gluttony to sexuality to whatever it might be. And it also leads to a guilty community, whether that's mom and dad, brothers and sisters, a football team, it can be a city, who fail their superstar because they failed to hold his feet to the fire and allowed him to... We've all been to the school maybe where the star guy on the basketball team or the baseball team gets away with murder because, well, we need him on that field. His grades are in the toilet, but he can sure hit a home run, you know. <laughs> it's not helping him. There's a, this is not a biblical illustration, but I'm going to use it. From the uh, Michael Jordan documentary that came out a few years ago, Phil Jackson said, who was the coach of the Bulls at that time, he says, the best compliment you can give to a player like Michael Jordan is to coach him hard. He said, everybody else just wanted to let him do his thing and let him go. He says, but I knew the best thing I could do is to push him to excel and to hold his feet to the fire and to make sure he didn't think he could walk around like nobody else. Well, it's similar with those that have great potential. They need the discipline of Christ perhaps even more than other people do. So this is important to know. But we do see that this was from the Lord. So it's good for us to remember we also should not be judgmental of those that have high potential, who are better at things than we are, and judge them really harshly out of a kind of petty revenge. I knew he'd mess up. I knew she was trouble. No, you didn't. You were jealous, and you've got a, a sense of satisfaction that she did something that you probably would have done in the same situation, but you didn't, so you feel good about yourself. This was from the Lord. And every now and then, if something happens that just you can't understand it, step back and say, Lord, is this you? Is this you? Because it might be. Verse 5, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Don't you love that simile right there? You know, you, know how, you know how you rip a goat in pieces? You know, you all know that, right? That's, he did that to this lion. <laughs> Always makes me laugh. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Apparently they had separated for a time along the walk. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. I bet she was. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went, much like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them. And all God's people said, ew. And they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So on the way to Timnah, and this is the first time we see Samson's legendary strength. And it is a, a point of debate about whether Samson always had access to this strength or if it was only in certain moments when the Spirit came upon him. I'm inclined to think that it was all the time. We'll talk about that more next time. You can think about it and ponder and see what you believe about that. It doesn't affect the story, really. But this is probably the first time we see the, these mighty feats of strength. He rips a lion to pieces with his bare hands. And it's not even like he bashes a rock against its head. He just rips it to pieces. And after the arrangement is set and he comes back, you know, during the time of the engagement, he's like, I'm going to go back and see if that lion's still over there. And there's a, there's a beehive inside this lion. 
And he goes in and scoops out the honey and starts eating. And, and you're supposed to get like a childish picture of him here. You know, like he's this big, strong man, but, you know, he sees candy on the side of the street or sees the gum, you know, stuck under the table and he's going to, you know, start eating it. We're not, you're supposed to get a low picture of him here. His parents know nothing of this. And he gives it to them, which is gross, but it's not just that it's gross. It's unclean. You were not supposed to touch a dead animal or you would be unclean, which is a good law, right? It doesn't say you did something wrong. It said you need to wash your hands and wait a day before you come in the house, right? That's sanitation. But he was a Nazarite. He was never supposed to do this. And it's one thing when a lion jumps on you and you have to fight for your life. It's another thing when you go back and you're scooping out dessert from the innards of this dead lion. This is our second point here. Samson and other high potential people face the temptation to be entitled. Entitled. We use that word a lot. What does it mean? It means to believe that you are owed something when you are not. To make demands of people or to take possession of something when you have no right. And usually it's because of who I am. There's something about me that enables me to do this. For example, if you ever watched one of those infuriating videos online where like a city councilman or a, a senator will get pulled over and they, they just are furious that somebody would dare to give me a ticket. It's like, you were speeding, homie. Like, what do you want me to do? It's like, well, I'm going to get your name and you, you, you lose your job. And it's like, whoa, that's super entitled, isn't it? I should be, I, I you know, help make the decisions around here so I can drive down the road as fast as I want. That's entitled. To make demands or take possession when you have no right. That's what Samson does. He sees this. He knows good and well he shouldn't be doing that, but he figures, well, I am the lion slayer. I did rip that thing apart just like a young goat. And uh, it's almost like God wanted me to have this. And so I'm going to take it because I can. And because I'm the one that's going to deliver us from the Philistines after all. So I deserve this. I deserve this. That's what entitled is. People like this feel that their gifts make them deserving of things that they do not deserve. I'm owed this because of what I do. And this leads to all manner of things, to, to theft of money. Well, I'm, the, I'm the manager. So, you know, I'm, I'm entitled to some of this money. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just for a few days, whatever. I got I to gotta fix the car and, you know, the company's not going to suffer. And I work hard around here. Judas was entitled, wasn't he? Well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to pay myself a reasonable wage. It can lead to the abuse of people. That I have a right to your subservience, and you better get in line and do what I say. Some, some of the way you see children treating their parents is a level of entitlement. I love, I love telling this story because it was so amazing to me. But when I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, one of the jobs we would often do is we'd go over to uh, Auburn and we'd go to Alabama University and we would clear out the dorms or we'd clear out the, the frat or sorority houses after the end of the year. And Zach was with me at this one, I think, actually. And um, we go in and it was a sorority house. Nobody was left. The mom was there and she was just the nicest lady. Hey, how are you? Come on in. We got everything's bagged up. Just go take it out. We always loved it when they pre-bagged the trash. It was just much better. Well, her daughter, who just graduated, is walking around, and she's just kind of in her phone and kind of isn't saying anything, and she starts talking to her mom, like, Mom! And I'm like, you just graduated college, and you're still talking like that? And she just was like, get up here! And I was like, get, I was like if I talked to my mom today like that, you know, there'd be a Tyler-shaped hole in the drywall, man. Like... But as we talked to this lady, she just kind of like, oh, you know, you know how they are. I'm like, I don't think so. But she goes, 
I, we, at some point it comes out, what did she major in? Oh, she majored in political science and she has an internship with a, a lawmaker in Washington. I go, oh, great. <laughs> you know? it's, but it was entitled that my, my mom has to do this for me because she's my mother, I guess. It's licensed to do what one wants. Worship leaders can fall into this temptation. And I am one of those, so I know what I'm talking about. That because I get up there and I can set the mood and I can sing, then it doesn't matter what I do on my weekends. So what are you going to do without me? What are you going to do when I'm not here? And uh, unfortunately, a lot of churches will allow their worship leaders to get away with that because they say, oh, well, if we don't have him, you know, people will stop coming to the church. Philippians 2 verse 3 tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's how we think about things. Not I deserve, but you deserve. And if we all start doing that, guess what? Everybody's going to be taken care of. We should humble ourselves. Let God exalt us. Like the parable about sitting at the foot of the table and being called up to the head rather than sitting at the head and having somebody bump you down. The lion was a symbol, I think, in this passage too of Samson's untamed strength that he needed to master. If he didn't master it, he was going to perish. So as we deal with people that have great potential, we need to make sure that we are fair in compensation, in our compliments, in the way we allow them things. Don't be stingy because, oh, I don't want them to get entitled. That's how you make an entitled person. But nor should we just be lavishing praise and money and prizes on people if they don't deserve them because we want them to stick around. Verse 10 his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, I love that little line because I wonder what it means. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. I had five groomsmen, and I thought that was a lot. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. They said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So here's Samson's wedding. You will note that this is not a pattern that is followed in other parts of Scripture. So a lot of commentators believe that they are celebrating this wedding in the Philistine fashion. And he's got 30 groomsmen that he doesn't know. And it, it could be seen as a mark of honor, right? That 30 young men. But also, like, are these there to honor him or to make sure he doesn't mess anything up? Maybe Samson already had a reputation for being the guy that rips lions apart like goats. And they're like... We need to make sure that this guy's not going to cause any trouble. Were they his babysitters? Were they bodyguards hired, you know, hired by the, the dad at this wedding? But he gives them this riddle to try to hoodwink them out of their, their expensive clothing. Now we say it's kind of a weird thing. Well, remember, you couldn't go down to the store and just buy clothes whenever you wanted. Expensive clothing was very hard to come by. And it's very likely these were like, it's like their tux, you know, that you wear when you go to a wedding. He says, I'm going to give you a riddle. And if you can guess it, then I'll give you all a brand new tux. But if I guess it, everybody gives me their tux before they leave. They go, you're on, pal. Now, of course, there's no way that they could guess this riddle, which is all contributing to the sense I can read here of, of a bit of threat and tension in this story. Not exactly a happy scene. They don't want to, you know, their, their 
sister, you know, their countrywoman to be marrying this Israelite. And there would have been a step down for them. They're a subjugated people. What are you marrying? And we also know this guy's kind of dangerous. And now, you know, he's over here talking smack and says, I bet I can come up with a riddle that none of the rest of you can solve. You want to put your money on that? You know how guys are. Samson's causing trouble. And the Lord is kind of stirring him up to cause a little bit of trouble. Here's our, our next point here. Samson and other high potential people or groups face the temptation to be prideful. Right? Prideful. Not that complicated. This is the kind of pride that thinks so highly of oneself that nothing could ever stop me. And it leads to unnecessary risks. Whether it's something like this, where we're going to have a, a scrap if this doesn't work out for you, Samson. We're going to see how it becomes even more dangerous. But also of relationships. That you start treating other people in such a way that risks rupturing the relationship. Maybe you've known somebody that was so prideful and so arrogant, they would run roughshod over you with the expectation they're not going to do anything about it. What's she going to do? She's not going to say anything. He's a pushover. I can do whatever I want. How can you talk to him that way? He ain't going to say anything. That's pride. Why do people like Samson face this temptation? Because they have rarely in their life faced a challenge too great for them. It's one of those people that I've never been in a situation that I couldn't figure my way out. Kind of like Jacob. Remember Jacob when he deceived his brother and he deceived his father and then he runs off and deceives his uncle and goes back and forth and they have like a trickster contest for all these years and then he's finally put in a place where he can't trick anybody anymore and that's when the Lord broke him. It was the same thing. They've never faced a challenge too great and it reminds me of the kind of pride that Israel had when they first came into the promised land. Joshua 7, 3 verse 5, you probably remember this story. They returned to Joshua, the scouts did, and they said to him, Don't have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. That's pride. We just made the walls of Jericho fall down. We just crossed the river without, you know, building a bridge. Need I say more? We're hot stuff. The Lord said they can't stand against us. You know what? We don't need to send up the whole army. Just send a few. The rest of us don't have to haul all of our stuff up there. And everyone wants to see their family and catch their breath. And they get beat because that's pride. And the Lord won't stand for that. So even Joshua and Israel's greatest generation were rebuked by the Lord. When you live with this kind of pride, as Samson is demonstrating here, it leads to jealousy because you get to a place where maybe somebody is able to outsmart you or outplay you. You ever played maybe basketball or, or I don't know, you know, squash with somebody who thought they were the best in the world and then they get beat and they just want to play one more game. One more game. Two out of three. Three out of five. Five out of seven. Oh, that one didn't count. That All of a sudden, they're very finicky about the rules, right? Like, oh, you were on the line. It's like, well, who cares, man? We're just playing a game. No, no, this is serious. That's what happens when you're prideful. It leads to anger. And it, of course, leads to inevitable failure because eventually you're going to take it too far. And there will be people that will have a spouse run out on them. And they'll be shocked. And you say, what happened? Well, nothing out of the ordinary. I don't know what happened. And you talk to the other person that left, and they say, she's been yelling at me for 25 years. I couldn't take it anymore. She's like, well, I just kind of thought that was okay because you never said anything before. Because that's the kind of pride that never thinks anything's going to go wrong. So sure, I'll bait these 30 rough, tough guys that were hired to watch me. 
I'll, I'll try to steal from them as best I can, even though my wife's going to be living here, and presumably me too, because I'd get away with anything. I always have. I rip lions to pieces. I eat the honey and nobody catches me. That's pride. We've got to remember where skill comes from, y'all. It comes from the Lord. It comes from Jesus. And we have to be good enough friends to one another to rebuke each other. When you see somebody growing prideful, taking unnecessary risks, I'm not talking about taking, you know, big shots. There are people that the Lord puts in our lives that are there to help us by taking big steps, to, to throw the Hail Mary pass and score a touchdown, to lob the ball from half court and it goes in. The Lord raises up people like that, like Joshua and Samson. But you need to also watch that they don't start to confuse the Lord using them to do great things with I can do whatever I want. You know, even our, our great country, which is the strongest and best in the whole world, I still believe that. If we think that we did this, we're going to lose it. Because it is the Lord who raises up and tears down nations. And then and when righteousness exalts a nation, but wickedness will tear it down. We have to remember that. Samson thinks he's unbeatable. But he's about to find in the next few verses that even he has a weakness. And I will give you one guess on what that might be. But it might not be what you think. Verse 15 through 18. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people. You won't even tell me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not even told my mother and my father. I'm going to tell you. Nice guy, Samson. And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. Ever been to a wedding where the bride was unhappy? Imagine a week of that. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Fine, I'll tell you. Goodness gracious, woman. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? And what's stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Samson comes up with a lot of little ditties in this story, you'll notice. You know, kind of the warrior poet type, I guess. Well, Samson's groomsmen have had enough of this. We did not get brought to this wedding to lose money. <laughs> and they threaten the bride. Either get him to figure out what it is, or we're going to kill you, and we're going to kill your whole family. And she goes to Samson, and her tactic is not to seduce him, but to nag him. I'm going to whine and cry, and you don't love me, and you don't care. But let's just call the stupid wedding off, because if you can't trust me, and I, would you stop? You're embarrassing me. Well, you're embarrassing me because you won't tell. And seven days of that, and that's what got to him. That's the one thing Samson was not prepared to stand against. And it's foreshadowing, by the way, because Delilah is going to do the exact same thing. It's not her seduction that broke him. It was her whining that broke him. And the man, of course, solved the riddle. And now Samson owes a lot of money, represented in, in high-value clothing here. And he's furious because he knows what she did. If you not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Of course, that meaning if you hadn't asked my wife, you wouldn't have known. And there is, by the way, intended to be an innuendo here. So there are some that have even speculated that there was more going on than just intimidation of this woman. 
that might be one of the reasons he leaves before they're able to consummate the wedding, but it doesn't give us a lot of information on that. The Bible usually doesn't when it's trying to uh, communicate something like that. Here's our point. Samson and other high potential people face the temptation to become fragile. When everything comes easy to you in life, people like you, you're talented, making money comes easy to you, you've never had trouble getting a date in your life, you've never studied for a test in your whole life and you just pass, you show up and it's like, I don't see why people think football is so hard, it's the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. You can fail in that, that case to develop resilience. You don't get tough. You're unable to handle difficulty and failure. You know, before we talked about the attitude that makes you think you're king of the world. But this is the attitude that when you inevitably do fail, you break. You break. Samson was not prepared to endure an assault on him from outside his area of strength. Let him try to beat me up. I ripped up a lion. I wish you would come at me and try to break our deal here. Well, we'll get your, your wife. So whatever. You can't seduce me, man. I'm a, I'm a man. I take care of my business. All right, fine. What if she nags you for a week? Apparently, that is something he was not prepared for. And that's what inevitably happens in life, right? You, you've faced something that you're not able to accomplish. You're, you face a, a struggle in your marriage that you are not prepared for. Something happens in your child that you never dealt with, your wife never dealt with, you don't know anybody who did, so how do we get over this? And if you have not taken the time to develop a reliance upon the Lord and a proper humility, you'll break in those moments. Being fragile makes us fail suddenly and terribly. This is what happens when somebody who's at the top of the world crashes and burns the first time something goes wrong. Because they've never learned how to deal with that before. Even to quit sometimes. You know, you'll even see folks in ministry that can preach like nobody's business, or they, they can sing, or they write great books, or they have you know, great other kinds of ministries, and you know, something comes up in their life, there's a bump in the road, or somebody's criticizing them, or there might be a, a thing in the church, and they're just gone. Because this has always been easy for me. And there wasn't a depth of love for Jesus that were able to stand through that. Politicians can have this problem. Husbands and wives can have this problem. Sports teams can have this. If there's an area that you've never had to worry about before, and here's some team doing something you weren't ready for, well, then what are we supposed to do? I remember, I'll go ahead and use a, a heartbreaking personal illustration here. I'm a Washington Nationals fan. So that's the heartbreaking part. But um, we, we brought in Bryce Harper, who was just five-star best player in, in high school, comes right in. In, in the first couple years, man, he's just driving home runs every single game. Then after a year or two, the very smart pitching coaches of the Major League Baseball figured out how to pitch to Bryce Harper. And he spent an awful lot of time swinging with all his might, whiffing, and his helmet flying off of his head. And that season, he became the most angry, violent guy on that team. He was pinning guys up against the wall. He was like slamming his helmet in there, arguing with the referees, getting tossed out of games. You know, he would overthrow his cutoff man. I'm going to throw it all the way to third base from, you know, right field and extra outs. And he didn't want to hear about it. And it's, this was a kid who'd grown up and had always been the best. Never had a problem hitting baseball in his whole life. Well, now there's somebody that throws something you've never seen before. And we saw, oh, he's actually kind of a snowflake, isn't he? This is why God sends his heroes into the wilderness. Everybody that God raises up, they spend some time in the desert. Metaphorically, but also literally quite often. 
to develop that spiritual strength, to have been to the edge of your strength and even of survival and come out of that already. And the Lord says, now you're ready. Even his own son, Jesus. Mark 1, 12 through 13. First thing that happened after Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. What do you think of a 40-day nonstop bombardment from the devil? And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's why we need those moments. And you don't have to go to the wilderness to get that. You can get that with the Lord voluntarily in your personal time with Jesus, through the church, through your quiet times. But if you don't build that, you're going to be in trouble. This is why we put our Navy SEALs through the things we put them through. Because what's ever going to intimidate them, right? Same thing spiritually. Samson, though, has been beaten and shamed. So what he's going to do, he's not going to quit. He's a stronger character than that. But he's going to do something about it. He's going to take the fight back to a place where he's strong. Verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. The Spirit comes upon him in power. You've all been filled with the Holy Spirit before. Was it the Holy Spirit empowered Samson to kill 30 guys and steal their clothing? That's in your Bible. Meditate upon that and think about what it might mean. He's so he's, where'd you get those 30 clothes? Don't worry about it. But he refuses to consummate his marriage. Storms off. And they figure, well, we already paid for the flowers, so somebody's getting married today. And she marries his best man. And that's actually going to come back in the next chapter. I want to swing this back positively at the end. Because this is something that the Lord is enabling Samson to do. This is what God was stirring Samson up to eventually do. Our fifth point is that Samson and other high potential people, despite their flaws, despite their pitfalls, are incredibly capable. Look at what he's able to do. We are in awe of Samson here with the power to defeat the Philistines. Such people that can come in and lead when everybody else is afraid. To plan when everybody else is confused. To sing in a way that Causes us to weep or to shout for joy. To inspire other people to build something amazing. That's why we love heroes. That's why we love people from our own family all the way up to you know, men that are going to have statues built of them. That there are people that have incredible potential. And when we see what can come of them, that's why we are prone to overlooking some of those other things. It's not good to overly focus on some of these negative things. Because many times... Most times, maybe. The positives outweigh the negatives. When you know somebody that is falling short in some areas, but they're trying, and boy, when they try. You know, you, we'll say this sometimes, that, you know, when he's angry, it's very hard to be around him, but that doesn't happen very much. And when he's not, he's just the best guy you could ever hope to be around. And we say, oh, you should just get rid of that dude. No, because there's something in there worth loving and worth cultivating, and worth working through those other things. We can look at Samson and say, what a jerk, toss him to the side. Be glad the Lord didn't do that to you. The Lord goes, look what Samson could be if we work through some of this trash that he's dealing with. Like Paul the Apostle. What could I do if he's no longer a Pharisee, but he's a Christian now? 
What could this man be? That's how God looks at us. If a person with great potential is able to harness that energy, they can change the world. And we all, to one degree or another, have one area in our life, or maybe more, that we can change the world, or at least our world. And what is the, the case that we ought to be aware of? If there is a somebody that has the ability to change the world, they probably will. And it's up to us as, as parents, or as children, or as a community, as teammates, as a church, to help them work through those things so that what they do will be done in honor of God, not for their own satisfaction. That's why God made Samson a Nazarite from birth. Says, I, gotta, I know what I'm going to make this guy to be. And if we can break the cult, you know, then he'll run faster than he ever could before. If I can teach him to honor me, if I can put these extra restrictions on him to help guide him in this way, we all need that discipline. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's saying, I don't want to end up like Samson. I want to finish like Samson could have finished in the area God has raised me up to be. All this to say, we don't want to look too poorly on Samson. He was a great man. He was a man of God. But he could have been so much more. And that's why it's tragic. And we're going to talk more about him for several weeks. We're going to look at him. But I wanted to focus on this theme here tonight. We love our children. You know, I love that question. How are we supposed to raise a child like that? We love our children. We love our heroes. We love our leaders. I'm reading a book right now about uh, the American Revolution. I don't know how many of those I've done. It's been several. Let's put it that way. And I love reading about those guys. When I hear those names, it's like, hey, that's Washington. All right. You know, Patrick Henry, liberty or death. Go for it, man. And, but then sometimes you read about the things they did and you go, oh, no. Why did you have to say that for? Why did you have to go there? Why did you have to? And, and not just for historical figures, but even friends that we have. One of my best friends growing up who is, who is dead now, and he's not with the Lord. He was had the most potential of any creative or musician I've ever seen in my entire life. Everything came easy to him. And he fell into every single one of these things that we've been talking about tonight. And he did not end well. And even ourselves, we have these things. But if we're going to live the life of somebody that can do great things, there's going to be pitfalls along the way. And it's up to us to identify them and minimize them. And it's also up to us as a family to identify them in each other and help one another walk through them. So what do we take from this? Don't be permissive and lenient to people who could be so much more if they were coached a little harder. Alternately, you should not take delight in limiting or throttling those people who have an awful lot to offer. Some people will do that. You know, when there's a very obvious choice for a certain position and somebody out of spite wants to go with somebody else. Well, they just need to be taught a lesson. People would do this in, in the youth ministry every now and then, I would see. You know, there, you would have, unfortunately, you'd have lady youth leaders that didn't like the pretty girls. Well, we all know what she's doing. She hasn't done anything. Well, you know what girls like that are like. And What is that all about? You're going to make her into what you think she's going to be. Or, you know, just, oh, everybody likes that guy. He's so popular. And he's so, so you know what? We'll, we'll let somebody else have a chance and kind of slow him down because he's probably full of pride. And you can really hurt people doing that way. A lot of pastors' kids get hurt that way, where they're in the churches and they're either given all kinds of permission, way more than they need, or he's always coming down on them. I'm not going to let you be, be one of those guys. 
Don't confuse potential with pride. Just look out for it. And it all comes back, though, to the discipline of the Lord, to which we should submit gladly and fully, because it's going to make you a world beater if you submit to it, man. Why wouldn't you? Then, when we're full of the Spirit, trained in His ways, our character's been transformed, that's when we go out and we start to change the world forever.